Wait, that's a thing? Never heard of it. Oh, you have no idea. This is Haven Space, a safe place for fantasies. Brought to you by sex coach and researcher Sarah Perry. Hi, folks. This is Sarah Perry, and welcome back to Haven Space. Today, we are going to be discussing disability pleasure activism. Yes, it is not really a fetish, but it's something super important that we absolutely have to discuss when we have an environment that is supposed to be real sex ed. It's supposed to be real conversations about sexuality and what's happening around us. And we are the sex positive people that the world needs to have this conversation and talk about it and listen to it and dialogue it and hopefully create better kind of support systems and better avenues for people with disabilities. So I want to start by talking about what you should expect. We're going to talk about um, kind of current laws surrounding disability access for pleasure. We're going to talk about why you should be invested in this. We're going to talk about um, kind of the way we desexualize and the way we infantilize people with disabled bodies and people who are cognitively disabled. We are going to listen to a lot of questions and not so many answers about what is morally quote unquote correct in the world of disability justice and disability pleasure access. And we are going to kind of redefine how sexuality looks in a lens that is um, not able-bodied, but more inclusive. And we will um, also talk about the case of Ashley X, which is a famous case in the year 2000s that um, is still being used today for kind of therapies for people who have um, cognitive and physical disabilities and the way that we choose consent for them. Um, so let's jump right in. Um, why should you be invested in this subject? We are all only temporarily able-bodied. If we're lucky, and even if we're not that lucky, we will have disabilities later on in life. Every single person that you see is going to have a reason that they pass away at some point. And most of the time, these reasons that we pass away are not sudden and are not without consequence, right? So we get older, our bodies change, our access to movement changes. Sometimes our cognitive abilities change. Sometimes we have accidents or burns or some type of situation that changes, even if it's just temporarily, the way you're able to move and use your body. So it's critically important that we each take a very personalized, um, invested approach to disability access because we will at some point be disabled in some way or other. It seems difficult to have to convince people that this is a worthwhile cause just because, well, we want people to have access to good things and feel good and be kind to each other and want to take care of society. Especially now, in these days where our political culture doesn't necessarily want to make sure that we advocate for people. But I want to take time to remind you, first of all, that you shouldn't need a reason to be a good person and care about other people. And secondly, that if you needed a reason, it's that most likely at some point you will be that person that you advocated for. And use your voice now. 
while you're able-bodied, while you have that privilege, able-bodied privilege, to um, exert your voice and be heard and go vote for policies that help access for disabled people. So um, we like to use the term tab, temporarily able-bodied, to talk about people who are able-bodied. We can even say able-bodied as opposed to people who are disabled, but I want you to know the caveat of having an able body doesn't mean that you have an able mind. And there are a lot of people that we see, homeless people, most of the time are people who do not have kind of the tools to in fact lead a life that would keep them out of homelessness. Even people who are homeless who have access to shelters and who have access to food, for example, may not even have the capacity to know that you have to go stand in line at four in the afternoon to get into the shelter at seven, or the capacity to understand that um, you can't defecate on yourself because other people won't allow you into public spaces right? So remember, we're using the term able-bodied, but I want to include disability of mind as well in this conversation. Um, There is a really super interesting, amazing, passionate, um, kind of reachable activist named Leah Lakshmi Piepsna Samarasinda, and she wrote a book named Pleasure Activism, The Politics of Feeling Good. Um, but this actual excerpt that I'm quoting came from Yes Magazine Online. Um, it was published with her permission, and I didn't ask for permission to say this, but I am quoting her, so I'm hoping that she appreciates my support. Um, she says, quote, we are given a really shitty choice, either have no needs and get to have autonomy, dignity, and control over your own life, or it may you need care and lose all of the above. And she's right. We expect disabled people to absolutely need our support, but not just our support. We demand that they need our money. We demand that they need constant supervision. We demand that they be completely desexualized as people, and completely infantilized. I like to tell a story of a time that I was volunteering in hospice and I walked into one of the facilities for the very first time with a fellow volunteer and all we actually do when we volunteer in hospice is um, show up and play games and have conversations with people simply because their families have a really, really, really hard time coming to visit 24-7 and they have a hard emotional time dealing with their family members who are dying visibly and a lot of times cognitively failing also. So, and a volunteer would just come in and sit down, enjoy time with them without the pressure of having known them and having been a part of their life before. So this one time we walk in and I am sitting down talking to one of the ladies who's just laying down having a conversation with me and she was sharp and sarcastic and fabulous and one of the other volunteers comes in and she does the head tilt like the friends episode where you like tilt your head to the side and you show pity for someone being oh you're doing good you're doing good and you talk to them like you would a little baby and um the lady just turned around to the volunteer and said why don't you just go over there and asked her to leave, which was hilarious and very well-earned, might I say, simply because we are not idiots, okay? Um, 
Even people who have low IQ levels are people that deserve to be talked to and treated with respect. And we don't get to make assumptions about people's capacity. A lot of times people can't communicate their capacity to understand what you're saying, but they do. And you don't get to make an assumption because those assumptions most of the time are wrong. Um, we actually define sexuality in able-bodied terms. When um, I recorded the video on performative sex versus pleasure-based sex, and it's on YouTube if you want to check it out, um, we talked about things like requiring that people uh, have penetration to have sex, uh, even requiring that your genitals be involved in order to define it as sex or that orgasms are involved in order to define it as sex. Here is the caveat. If you are a person who, for example, has had a clitoris removal because of some kind of female um, circumcision, you don't necessarily have to have a clitoris to have sex. In fact, even with those surgeries, sometimes people have internal pleasure from the rest of the clitoris gland and sometimes they have pain associated with that that keeps them from being able to have penetrative sex. And regardless of their genital arrangement, they should have access to pleasure in whatever form they can and want to receive it, right? I don't think that anyone can disagree with the fact that people deserve to feel good. It is a huge part of coping with the world's stresses. It is a huge part of coping with any kind of mental and emotional distress, feeling pleasure, feeling good, whether it is with a drink in your hand or it is with your feet in the ocean or with a vibrator on your clitoris are all valid forms of relaxation and pleasure and they're earned and important. So additionally, not only talking about defining sexuality in able-bodied terms, we also talk about it in really privileged terms. The idea that people have access, for example, to STD and STI testing is kind of an assumption when it comes to in this country when it comes to like your finances. A lot of people don't have insurance. They are not covered to get STD and STI testing, and therefore things get worse exponentially and spread to other people. We always have arguments about why should we be paying for it? Why should my taxes pay for someone's STD and STI testing? Well, because we should be paying for people to be safe and healthy, and those things spread in our communities. So deciding to not test somebody for HIV only makes HIV more prone to exist in your community and in fact makes you more likely to get it long term. And if not you, then your children, your friends, your other partners. So you definitely, definitely want to invest in a society where people have access to um, sexual care. Additionally, we also have the privilege of our intersection, the way our different identities kind of mix with each other and create exactly where we exist in our point of privilege, our positionality. So we have different identities that all carry a certain amount of privilege or stigma or a combination for most people. And these things really affect our access to care, to healthcare, to um shame or stigma surrounding mental health or surrounding our sexual activity. So for example, a disabled person who is from a low-income black community has a lot 
a lot lower chances of having access to adequate care and even having support from the community in accessing that adequate care. Um, And these are not things I'm just saying, right? There's all kinds of studies about intersectionalities and privilege and how they affect you, especially in your disability status. A great example of this is actually a study that I had to do for one of my courses with Dr. Jess Wagner, where we just had to showcase disability in whatever way we thought. I talked about what we had learned in class, and our class was a sexuality and disability class uh, with a heavy emphasis on pleasure advocacy and disability and pleasure justice. In my project, I chose to just put out some info on my social media asking for anybody who wanted to be photographed who identified as having a disability. And I defined having a disability the way we should define it, the technical definition, which is according to Merriam-Webster, quote, a physical, mental, cognitive, or developmental condition that impairs, interferes, or limits a person's ability to engage in certain tasks or actions or participate in typical daily activities and interactions. Think about what this means though. Think about how many people have some condition, physical, mental, cognitive, developmental, that impairs your ability to participate. That's literally fucking everybody. It's everybody who has any kind of anxiety, anybody who has bipolar disorder like I do, anybody that's dealing with um, emotional distress, trauma. I mean, it's such, such, such a large segment of our population that I basically just left an open call. If you identify as having a disability, let me take a picture of you. The idea at first was that I would do these two pictures, a photograph of a person kind of serious in black and white, and I'd display it in one space. And then I'd have people navigate to a second space where I had new pictures of the same people in the same places, but they were in color and they were laughing or smiling. And I was trying to show that even people with disabilities have so much joy in their lives. And and that joy is contagious, right? It's like, it's worth something valuable to our society to have people be joyful. I mean, imagine exponentially how amazingly successful and how great our society would be and how productive and how communicative and how symbiotic if people were joyful. So I wanted to express that. And what I found was, first of all, that everybody that showed up, that that wrote to me wanting to be photographed, um, was already someone who laughed often. In Spanish, you would say risueños, people who are kind of giggly and already were lighthearted and open to the project. And it was really super hard to get them to take a serious face and look at the camera. Um, I also found that people look away when they're laughing. And I don't know where that comes from, but if you notice yourself laughing, at some point soon, pay attention and see if you're looking at the person who made you laugh or if you are looking away. And I thought that was incredible. But what I thought was the most incredible, that out of these 30-something people that I photographed laughing hysterically, only one was a person of color and only two were men. And it shows, it evidences the stigma around asking people for help around saying, I have a disability, I have an impairment. We don't have it. We, we don't have the capacity 
to reach out when we are in certain demographics because society has not accepted it. Society has accepted the trope of a strong, angry black woman, a strong, angry Hispanic woman. It has not accepted the idea that a black woman can be a cripple, that a black woman can need support. In fact, we have carried this ontology of the weight of black women and we have built a whole country on them giving everything up for us. So as we examine access to uh, disability justice, we have to take into account the historicity of our race. We have to take into account the amount of money we have in the bank and the amount of money our parents had in the bank and the fact that maybe some of us went and saw a therapist or were in a psych ward at some point in our lives and maybe some of us only had heroin to turn to, right? So we have to keep these things as part of the conversation because they greatly affect our access to our own joy and pleasure. But everything we've discussed really, even though we're talking about mental disabilities, doesn't really touch on cognitive disabilities. So what happens and what is the law if a person is born with the mind of a baby and then only grows to the mind of a child. We have many people in our demographics who never grew, who through one reason or another never developed the the mental and emotional capacity to behave as adults. Some of those people had access to care and some of those people did not, but those people certainly exist. Now, the question is, can a person whose mind never became quote-unquote 18 and up, make decisions for their own sexuality. And the law says no. The law actually says that if you have the mind of a child, it doesn't matter how old your body is, you may not consent to sex. Now, we have to problematize what consent means, and I've had these conversations before because it's not so cut and dry. Consent requires that a power dynamic be even. And even though I don't know any relationship where the power dynamic is even, certainly in a situation where someone has the cognitive mind of a seven-year-old and their caretaker, for example, not only takes care of them, has control over the food they ingest, but most of the time their safety, and additionally the mind of whatever age they are, say 35, 40, Of course, we will disagree that there are levels of power that are not even enough to consent. But even if the power dynamic was not part of the definition of consent, the law actually says because they're children in their minds, they may not consent to sexual contact. Who does consent for them? Well, shocker, their parent or guardian, the person who has the power of attorney. So this becomes really problematic because most of the time, the parents of some 30-something-year-old person who has never been able to speak certainly don't feel comfortable agreeing to letting him have a blowjob, for example, or agreeing to letting him have a sex doll. All of these things are part of access to pleasure that disabled people absolutely should have access to, but somehow our law system still feels like, ew, this is icky and I feel uncomfortable. But of course we do because we're not having these conversations and we're not talking about um, advocating for pleasure and we're not talking about how pleasure could be literally a physical release that someone needs. It's medicinal and it's healing and people should have access to it by default. 
it makes us uncomfortable to have conversations about cognitively disabled people having orgasms. I tend to assume that part of the issue is also that our minds have decided that people who are crippled are in pain. And we are not comfortable with the idea of someone in pain also being in pleasure. Ironically, a huge part of getting over medical trauma, medical sexual trauma, and of people with disabilities engaging in sex falls inside of the kink community. A lot of times because the kink community knows how to navigate consent restrictions and knows how to navigate maybe tools and techniques that literally can make the difference between someone being able to put their body in a certain position or being tied up. I want to discuss a really specific shocking case that was inspirational for me that we have come to know as the Ashley X case. This happened in the 2000s. Um, Basically, Ashley X and her family have uh, remained anonymous, but they did publish a a website and they have information about it. You can check it out online where they talk about their choice um, as guardians of their child to, at the age of nine, uh, do estrogen therapy, which fuses her bone plates and stops her from growing and chosen to remove her breasts or breast buds because at nine, you don't have full grown breasts on a person who was physically and cognitively disabled part of the narrative states that she is about them has about the mind of a four-month-old but later on in the narrative it does say that she responds to like stimulus and actually laughs which would be more similar to the mind of like an 11 month old eight nine ten month old and so it's a little bit skewed what how they're perceiving this person's physical age but the real shocker is not that they chose to stunt Ashley X's growth and to remove her breasts. The shocker is that one of the reasons they chose to do it is because they did not want to encourage, in fact, they said they wanted to prevent Ashley X being sexualized by a caretaker. I don't know if you need to hear this from me. I assume that if you're already here and listening, then you know that victims are not responsible for being assaulted or raped. Um, And certainly this is the case for disabled people. People with disabilities, especially, especially cognitive disabilities, are very, very likely to be assaulted by caretakers, especially in facilities. Um, There's a ton of research on it. Sadly, there is not enough access to information because this research is obviously only on reports and no facility is volunteering reports about their staff raping patients so we have to keep these things in mind right when we have conversations about it if a person like ashley x had her whole life chosen for her in terms of what size she would be and how she was supposed to behave and we basically spared her of perhaps the sensation of having a seatbelt push against her breast that could have been fantastic or of any kind of pleasurable touch Is that really what we should be doing for our society? Is that the better thing to do? And how can we change our minds so that people who have differently abled bodies have access to both pleasure and care in a way of having like dignity and some fucking control over what happens over their lives? So I want to encourage you to think about these things. 
keep them in mind and start trying to come up with your own ideas about uh, access to pleasure for people with disabled bodies. And next week's podcast is going to feature a disabled sex educator communicating with us about access to pleasure, sex education, and the reasons we have to be advocates for this. Um, you can check out her stuff at at Cripping Up Sex with Eva. And I look forward to the conversation we will have next week. Thanks for tuning in and I'll catch you next time. This has been another podcast of Haven Space. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Haven Space by Sarah and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Haven Space by Sarah. If you enjoyed this talk, consider becoming a patron and helping fund more talks like this in the future.